Today is a good day. We had an awesome family dedication. We've had an awesome chance to worship. We're going to worship again at the end of the conclusion of our morning. And today we get to return to our study in the Gospel of Mark. I love the Bible. I want you to love the Bible. The Bible is a collection of 66 books written over 1,500 years that displays remarkable unity and has been proven true over and over and over by modern archaeological studies or discoveries. The Bible is divinely inspired. It is God speaking his truth in human words. Now, Valentine's Day is coming, so the Bible is more than this, but one of the ways we can think about the Bible is that the Bible is a divine love letter written by our Heavenly Father to children He deeply, deeply cares about. Now, our problem, unfortunately, today isn't merely that we don't respect the Bible. It's also that when we read it or even preach it, we tend to reduce it to man-centered principles. If I do this, then this. If you do this, then this. Now that is called moralism. It's making the Bible a bunch of to-dos. It's what Paul Tripp is going to be getting at in this parenting seminar because parents get in trouble along the way if they reduce parenting to just a bunch of do's and don'ts. It's what happens when we reduce Christianity to kind of a work-centered religion. And when we think of the Bible that way, when we have this moralistic view of the Bible, what we do is we go to the Bible and we gather a tip or a principle here or there on how we can live a better life. And it's all on us. The Bible is not ultimately about what you or I do. It's about the supernatural revelation of grace, of God giving us his son to rescue us from our sin through the death of Jesus Christ. So we read the Bible primarily to learn about Jesus, to learn about who Jesus is and all that Jesus has done for us, all the grace that comes to us through the death and resurrection of Christ, and then secondarily, how we respond to that grace, how we live in grace. So grab a Bible, turn on your Bible, there's Bibles in front of you, and let's go to Mark chapter 6. This is a divinely inspired chapter. And we're going to look at two sections today. One, the call of Jesus, where Jesus commissions the 12 to go out two by two. And the other section, the longer section, on the cost of that call. And I want to prepare you ahead of time. This second section is grim. It's sobering. Because there is a cost to following Jesus. So let's read. Let's start with the call. Let's pick it up in the middle of verse 6, in that paragraph that begins in the middle. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village 
calling the 12 to him, he sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. So they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Now this little bitty section is a major turning point in the Gospels, a major turning point in the ministry of Jesus because here Jesus launches the disciples for the first time into their own ministry. There's this transfer of ministry, this transition of ministry that takes place. And this transition, this launching the disciples will result in eventually changing the world. A little bitty section is a big deal. I mean, the rabbis didn't do what Jesus did. The rabbis were rabbi-centric. Come and hear me. Jesus here, after a period of about two years, now turns the disciples loose and releases them to their own ministry. So there is a shift in what we just read. From the message of Jesus, if you will, to the method of Jesus. From Jesus preaching now to his plan. And here in this call, this commissioning of the disciples, we discover Jesus' strategy. His strategy to reach the world. And what is that strategy? It's identifying faithful, available, teachable people, fat, faithful, available teachable people pouring his life, his teaching into them and then sending them out in his grace, his power, his authority to make disciples that will in turn make disciples. In a word, Jesus' call, his plan, his strategy is disciple making. And it's brilliant because it's multiplication. It's people reaching people. So our passage, these verses, Mark 6, illustrates what Jesus has been doing from the beginning of the Gospels to the end of the Gospels, what Jesus has been teaching from the beginning to the end. So if you go back to chapter 1 in Mark, chapter 1 and verse 17, Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Here we see a major transition to that end. Not just follow me, but follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Then as we know, Jesus concludes the Gospel of Matthew with the Great Commission. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Disciples who would reach disciples. So Jesus' mission wasn't, was not to reach the world. His mission was to make disciples who would make disciples who would reach the world. And parents, grandparents, this is your mission with your kids. God has given you children 
that you might by his grace turn them, see God work, that they might become disciples that make disciples. If you're here and you're single, that's your mission. If you know Jesus Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, Mark chapter 6 illustrates your mission. This is Jesus' strategy. This is Jesus' plan. He has no other plan than to use people like you and me to reach people uh, like you and me. And this plan is the hope of the world. Now I want to make four observations about this plan. This passage illustrates how deeply Jesus loves the world. And we read this and and we can miss that if we're not careful. This passage, these verses reveal how deeply God desires that all men and women be saved. Why? Because here our Lord is launching a movement to go into the highways and the byways, into the villages, into the cities, into the urban centers, to the down-and-outers, to the up-and-outers, to deliver people from the the grip of demons, disease, death, and hell. Here we see how much Jesus cares for people. And may God give us the grace to love the world like Jesus is demonstrating here, he loves the world. Honestly, I read this and, and I realize I don't care about the hundreds of thousands of lost people in DuPage County alone nearly as much as Jesus does. I don't have the urgency that Jesus demonstrates here. Jesus calls the 12, sends them out. So this little section reveals the most loving, uh, the most potent thing Jesus will do next to his death and resurrection. I want you to get this. Observation number two. Jesus' focus here is on disciple-making, not discipleship. And we've got it backwards. Discipleship, uh, as it's been uh, used today increasingly, is about what I do with Jesus, what I do with my Christian friends. And over time, what has happened in the evangelical church in North America is that this concept of discipleship has become self-centered, inward, and comfortable. Disciple-making is different. Now, yes, it involves following Jesus and obeying Christ to be sure, but it also includes lifting up Christ, talking to those that don't know Christ about Christ. It involves pointing people to Christ in a variety of different ways. And then when God draws someone to himself, when God the Holy Spirit saves a person, then we befriend that person and we teach that person and train these new believers, these younger believers, so they can repeat the process. In other words, disciple-making, as we're seeing here in Mark chapter 6, is other-centered. They're going into the villages. It's externally focused, and it's often uncomfortable, and it's tiring and wearying. They didn't know what was ahead. 
for example, one of the ways to illustrate the difference, and this is important, and I know I'm going to step on some people's toes. So pull your feet in. Uh, discipleship, as we use it today, is, uh, for example, studying the Bible with your friends. And year after year, what do you do? You study the Bible with your friends. Disciple-making, however, is with your friends reaching people who don't know Christ. And then discipling these younger believers that they might repeat the process. Now, in the kingdom of God, there is certainly room to study the Bible with your friends. I'm not disputing that. What I am saying is we are guilty of reducing what we see here in Mark chapter 6, and we call it discipleship, and it becomes a self-centered thing, and we just stay comfortable all our lives. And our problem in North America and the evangelical church is that we have committed reductionism. Disciple-making is always inherently externally focused. It's uh, discipling others who are younger that they might disciple others. And and so we have taken this plan of Jesus and, and we've made it about us. I mean, we're busy and we go to church and we go to our studies and we fill our notebooks and there's nothing wrong with that, of course. But what's going on is we aren't making disciples. And I want you to know, and this is a behind-the-scenes comment, that there are some leading churches around the country today that are starting to say, hey, we're not going to use the word discipleship. We are instead going to talk about disciple-making because of this reductionism going on. And I want you to think about this relative to your own life. Are you giving yourself to discipleship or disciple-making? Observation number three. You and I are no more ready for this, no more able to do this, no more prepared to pull this off than the disciples. None of us are equal to disciple-making. Now, up to this point in the Gospels, the track record of the disciples, it's hardly been reassuring, not very pretty. They've been often weak. They've been often confused. They're often fearful. We saw this in the previous chapter. And and for Peter, the worst is yet to come, for Thomas. Yet here, Jesus surprisingly, you could say shockingly, turns these disciples loose. Go two by two. This is exactly how it is for all of us. And ministry, uh, disciple-making, like parenting, is always a call and assignment to which none of us are prepared for. The fulfillment, though, of the mission of God uh, doesn't depend, it doesn't rest upon us. It rests upon Jesus and what he will do by his grace in us and through us because we are not the power of God to salvation. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. Now, I say this because many of us have resisted getting in the game of making disciples because we feel like we're over our heads. We feel inadequate. So we don't lift up Christ. We don't invite new believers into our lives. We don't disciple them that they can disciple others. Man, I can't pull that off. Man, I got a lot on my plate. 
And I want to say to you, you are no more inadequate than these 12. And they had spent two years with Jesus. Observation number four. Disciple-making demands total dependence on Jesus, on, on God. Jesus' call here, as I said, reflects urgency. Uh, by the way, and parenthetically, Jesus is not legislating a lifestyle here, okay? He's giving a temporary assignment. This is a descriptive passage, not prescriptive. But here, in the context of this urgency, what Jesus is demanding is total commitment, total dependence upon God. And we see this specifically in, in three different ways because Jesus does three things. In verse 7, he gives them unparalleled authority to drive out demons. I mean, talk about risky, talk about dangerous. Then second, in verses 8 and 9, he tells them to bring with them uh, just the, the, the minimum of essentials because they are to trust God to provide through the hospitality of other people. And parenthetically, that kind of hospitality was not unusual in the first century. Jesus is uh, implying, I've got my people in these different villages and some of them are going to take you in and you just have to trust me that I'm going to go before you and I'm going to provide those people for you. And then third, in verses 10 and 11, uh, Jesus tells them how to act. He says, don't hop from house to house. Man, if somebody bites you in, stay there. If you get a better offer, stay where you are at first. And by the way, if people reject you, if they're uninterested in you, then shake the dust off your feet which is exactly what Jews did when they came out of Gentile territory. So for the disciples to do this in Jewish villages is to declare these Jewish villages heathen. And it's a sign of judgment. So this call, these, these little verses, this little section in the Gospel of Mark is this brilliant strategy of multiplication and it's our call, it's our strategy. Jesus' design is your destiny. Jesus' design is my destiny. It's our destiny. We lean toward disciple-making not merely discipleship. Now there's more here. I want to move from the call to the cost. But first, I want you to jump down with me to the end of this section, to verse 30, where we have this verse on the disciples reporting. Look at verse 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Now, when we read that verse, it's clear that that's really the conclusion of what we read through verse 13. So what this means is beginning in verse 14 through verse 29, Mark once again interrupts his first story to insert or sandwich in a second story so that this second story will drive home a point relative to the first story. We'll get to that point in a few minutes. So let's read this second story now about the cost. Let's pick it up in verse 14. 
King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying John the Baptist had been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work. Now you need to know, this is not Herod the Great. This is not the same Herod who at the birth of Christ had all the babies killed in Bethlehem, according to Matthew chapter 2, in his effort to kill the baby named Jesus. That was 30 years earlier. This is the son of that Herod. This is the son of Herod the Great. Let's pick it up in verse 15. Others said he is Elijah, and still others claimed he is a prophet like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, the man I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. Now Mark mentions John's death. What he's going to do in the verses that follow is now digress and give us the details of John's death. Now in the Gospel of Mark, this is obviously important to Mark because we have three verses on John's life and we have 14 on John's death. Let's continue reading. Let's pick it up in verse 17. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested and he had him bound and put in prison. Now let's, I want you to see this archaeological ruin. Let's put this slide up here. Early Jewish historians have identified the fortress palace that is described here. This is about five miles east of the Dead Sea. It was a major fortress palace in the first century, it had a prison. I'm, we're going to show you a couple pictures here, three of them. And what they have discovered, what the archaeologists have discovered, is a, is a great room, a banquet room, and we're going to read about a banquet. And they have discovered, most likely, the very room where we're going to, which we're going to read about. Let's continue. Oh, and let me just say, by the way, this is the stuff that makes this Israel trip so fascinating that we go on. We've still got a couple places. If you'd like to go with us, you can check the information in your worship folder. Now, let's pick, go back to verse 17. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. Philip lived in Rome. This Herod goes to Rome really likes Herodias, Philip's wife, has an affair with her. They talk about getting married. She says, well, you've got to divorce your wife. He says, done. They leave their spouses, and they marry one another, and they come back together to rule over Galilee and Perea. And the Jews hated him for this. It was a scandal. If there would have been newspapers in this um, day and age, it would have been the stuff that would have been just behind the scenes in the newspapers. And so let's continue reading verse 18. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Now think about that. Do you see the courage in John the Baptist? It's remarkable. John knows that speaking out against the king is extremely dangerous, if not life-threatening. Yet he does it. 
And what's interesting is he even holds this Gentile ruler accountable to the Jewish law, the Old Testament law. Let's keep reading as the story unfolds. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him, but she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled. He was conflicted, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for the high officials, the military commanders, and the leading men, the who's who of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want, I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. Now it's likely most scholars believe a figure of speech here. He's not literally offering her half the kingdom. He's saying whatever you want is within your reach. She went out to ask her mother. Now her mother had been plotting and planning behind the scenes to get to John the Baptist. What shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried into the king with a request. I want you to give me the head right now of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed. But because of his oaths and his dinner guests among the who's who, he did not want to refuse her, so he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The men went and beheaded John in the prison and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl. She gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Now, I want to make two observations about what we just read. But the first comes from something that Mark doesn't mention. And that is that while in prison, John the Baptist apparently had a crisis of faith, struggled with uh, 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 doubts. He battled doubts, just like many of us do. Now, as I said, Mark doesn't mention this, but Matthew does. So go back to Matthew chapter 11. I'll put these verses up behind me, but I want you to see this interesting section, Matthew chapter 11, verse 2. This is Matthew's account of what takes place prior to what we have in Mark 6. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? I submit to you that's an unusual, that's a strange question from John the Baptist. Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. I submit to you that's an equally strange statement coming from our Lord. So what's going on? Well, John's question in verse 3 is surprising. As I said, it's, it's strange. I mean, he knew who Jesus was. This was a man that was all in, full of faith, totally committed to Christ. He had baptized Jesus. He had seen the Spirit descend as a dove. He had heard the voice, the text tells us, of God, saying, this is my son whom I love, who I'm well pleased with. But now John has been in prison for a while. Dr. Carson, D.A. Carson, says probably about a year, and John is discouraged. And he sends his disciples to ask Jesus, 
Who are you? Now think about what's going on. Jesus is out and about performing miracle after miracle. I mean, he's casting out a demon here, a demon there. He's raising people from the dead. He's healing the sick. John is hearing about this. And John is Jesus' key guy. John is the man. He's Jesus' forerunner. In Matthew chapter 11, our passage we're looking at right now, if you go down to verse 11, Jesus will say, John is one of the greatest men who has ever lived. And John was at the height of his ministry, the height of his career. God was using him mightily. People were flocking to him. And suddenly it's all over and he's thrown into prison. And the days and the weeks turn into months. And he's unemployed. He's usually hungry. And he's almost always alone. So the question behind John's question in verse 3 is where are you, Jesus, when I need you the most? I'm your guy. Why aren't you liberating me like you're liberating so many other people? Uh, The question behind the question is why aren't you answering my prayers? And John is in crisis. Now lest you think I'm reading too much into verse 3, skip down to verse 6. And I suggest, I want to suggest this is exactly why Jesus concludes his description of all his supernatural activity with a warning. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. I mean, if somebody came up to you and said, man, you can't believe the, the, the miracles going on at Wheaton Bible Church, you're not going to say, man, if one more person comes to Christ, I'm out of here. You're not going to issue a warning. You're going to praise God. So the supernatural activity and the work of Jesus that he is doing in other people's lives did not eliminate John's doubts they intensified them caused them Uh, Jesus what about me it's just like us and this is a deep it is a profound it is a difficult reality Because Jesus in verse 6 is implying, John, you need to trust me for you. You need to trust my plan for you. John, I'm not coming through for you in this particular situation as you would like. My definition of things going well, John, is different than your definition of things going well. I'm not getting you out of prison. My purposes are not to spare your life, but to spend it so that you might honor me and point as my forerunner to my death. Jesus is saying, John, I love you, 
but the path I have chosen for you is difficult and it's different. And it's different than what it is for others. Now, you're going to be incredibly blessed. The first word in verse 6 is, is blessed. But it's going to be incredibly hard. So in verse 6, Jesus says, John, you will be blessed if you don't fall away on account of how I choose to work in your life. Now, please, please do not misunderstand this. The point isn't that Jesus abandons his people in, in times of adversity, in times of trouble. He doesn't. The point is that Jesus allows bewildering, confusing trouble in the lives of his people for his glory and for our good. And instead of falling away and demanding this, Jesus, look what you're doing in everybody else's life. We trust him and we say, yes, sir. There are very few things I can say to you that are more important than this. And parents, as you disciple your children, you want to prepare them for God's call on their lives and you want to prepare them for the cost of standing up for Jesus. You see, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has come to save us, to rescue us, to forgive us, to make us righteous and, and, and to transform us, but not to save us from suffering but to save us from meaninglessness, unfruitfulness, from wasting our lives. And the call of God on your life will never be the same as it is on somebody else's life. Some of you will suffer more. Some of us will suffer less. I have lots of friends that are senior pastors, lead larger churches around the United States. I'm with them, um, have the privilege of be, being with them regularly. Not a single one of them has gone through what Rhonda and I have gone through. Not a single one. And, and there's a sense in which, while they're sympathetic, they, they just can't get it. Jesus is saying to his key guy, John, we must not measure our call or God's call on our lives by what God is doing in the lives of others. So John, I want you to trust me. John, I want you to submit to me. John, you will be blessed. Do not fall away on account of what my particular plan for you is. Now I belabor this because what is at stake in this Sobering passage is a secular versus a Christian view of suffering. I find Tim Keller helpful here. The secular view of suffering places all confidence in human ability, human reason, and medicine, and science, and education, and on and on. And if God exists at all, according to the secular view, then he exists to make us chronically happy. That is why today... So many people avoid suffering. They try to keep it at an arm's length. That's why today they, they can't deal with it. And if, if suffering comes, they panic in the face of it. And if it continues, they become embittered and hopeless. You see, the secular view of suffering provides no answers beyond medicine. And I'm not down on medicine. I'm married to a physician. The Christian or, or, or biblical view is very, very different because in the biblical view, uh, confidence is in divine ability, not human ability. 
It's the biblical view is, uh, the Christian view is sensitive to the anguish of the soul. Hence the Psalms. That's why we read the Psalms when we're in pain. Uh, but the Christian view also got, views God as personal and present. Sovereign and suffering himself and his son. And the Christian view argues that meaning and significance has nothing to do with our circumstances, but everything to do with what God has done for us in the death of his son, with who we are in Jesus Christ and our permanent eternal home in heaven. So according to the, the, the Bible, suffering is like a furnace. It purifies out our sinful tendencies and it makes us holy, it makes us patient, it makes us uh, dependent. And adversity, according to the Bible, is our friend. John the Baptist knows this. He will be fine. But here in Matthew chapter 11, and we have to see Matthew chapter 11 before we can get to Mark chapter 6, he is feeling left behind for the moment. He is feeling isolated. Suffering does that. He has no idea that as the forerunner of Jesus Christ, his death will foreshadow, will picture, and will point to his Savior's death. Now, let's go back to Mark chapter 6. Turn with me, and I want to wrap this up and make my second and final observation. And this observation gets at the reason this story on the death of John the Baptist is inserted right in the middle of this picture of Jesus' disciple-making strategy. And you get it, and I've said it. And the point is, and the reason it's inserted, this story within a story, is to illustrate there's a cost to following Jesus. A cost to this call. There's a plan and there's a price. Uh, there's disciple-making and sometimes there's death. There's a mission and sometimes there's martyrdom. So the call of Jesus on our lives is the most wonderful thing on the planet, bar none. That's been true in my life, and I've been through a lot. But it is also the most demanding thing on our lives because over and over the New Testament will tell us faith in the life of a follower of Christ is risky business. And Jesus, almost honest to a fault, tells us this over and over. So if you fast forward two chapters to Mark chapter 8 and verse uh, 34, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. These 12 men going out two by two trusted Jesus with their lives. And most of them lost their lives on that journey. So let me land this. Disciple-making, then, according to God's Word, is never about your ability. It's about your availability. It isn't about your goodness. It's about God's grace. It isn't about you, you being comfortable. It's about God's call. It, it, it isn't about your safety. It's about the strategy of your Savior. God has created you. God has called you to change the world by making disciples that make disciples. Jesus died not to free us from dying, but to free us from the fear of death. 
Christ went to the cross and died in our place so you and I could die up front and then spend our lives obeying Him, serving Him, submitting to Him. And Jesus wants to take you to places where only dead men and dead women will go. And if anything demands dying to self, disciple-making does. So I want to invite you this morning to give yourself to this call and trust God for the cost. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for this opportunity now